Welcome to Stuff from the Science Lab from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey guys, and welcome to the podcast. This is Allison Lattermill, the science editor at HowStuffWorks.com. And this is Robert Lamb, science writer at HowStuffWorks.com. Today we're going to do the first podcast in a recurring series that will look at how different celestial bodies get their start. And we're going to begin with stars. Yeah. Um, do you know what a supergroup is, Allison? Tell me what a supergroup is, Robert. Would it be uh, something like U2? No, no, no. Okay. U2 is a group that, you know, these guys came together, you know, started small and they became this, you know, this awesome uh, musical act, right? Um, and I'm talking about like established, you know, names and they are, they're just pulled together by their own, you know, awesomeness and they form a super group, you know? It's kind of like a, like a Voltron of music. Like, uh, Couple of classic examples are like the traveling uh, Wilburys of the eighties. Okay. This was Bob Dylan, George Harrison, Tom Petty, Roy. uh Jeff Lynn of Electric uh, Light Orchestra, Roy Orbison all come together and really don't make anything memorable, but they, they still they come together in an awesome group, <laughs> right? Uh the Highwaymen, that was Waylon Jennings, uh Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson, Willie Nelson. You know, they come together, just drawn together by the, and just become something in theory awesome, you know? No kidding. Yeah, now not like like Wu Tang Clan would not be an example because like those guys all started off together as Wu Tang and then they became awesome and then you know went off and did their own thing and then came back. But no, these are these are people who are just drawn together and they you know become a super group. So that's what I keep thinking of when I was uh, reading all about uh, star formation and really uh, the formation of a lot of things in our in our universe due to a process called accretion. Yeah, so let's take it from the top, shall we, in the uh, process of star birth. Yeah, like most things in our um, 13.75 billion-year-old universe, stars begin as uh, just particles, or began as particles, just floating around in these vast clouds of dust and gas. Um, and these clouds, which we know as nebula, uh, they don't do a lot of anything for a while. They're cold, they're monotonous, nothing's happening, right? Just little particles out there, you know, like little bitty... You know, nobody's on the music scene, just out there in space. Just playing the clubs, right. hoping for a big break. Yeah. 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 But then what happens? Then, like some sleepy backwater town in a biker movie, think 1953 classic movie Wild One. That would be the film analogy. And by the way, I don't think you've seen Wild One, have you, film star? No, no, I have not seen seen that. Yeah, I do like rubbing that in because you've seen pretty yeah. much every movie on What do you Earth. think of that movie? And Wild I have one. not seen any movies, including Wild okay. One. Uh but but the idea is pretty simple. It's like sleepy town, and right. then in comes the biker. Right. Everything everything gets all crazy when this newcomer speeds through. In the case of a star, the disturbance might take the form of a streaking comet or the shockwave from a distant supernova. Rather than, say, Marlon Brando riding on a 1952 Triumph Thunderbird and playing the leader of a motorcycle gang. Have you ever seen a Triumph Thunderbird? We have a picture of one on our site. It's pretty, it's pretty cool. A Thunderbird? You mean like the classic like Native American bird that... No, no, I mean like a cycle... Oh, no, I guess like not. Like a bike. I, all vehicles look the same to me. So what happens next? All right, so, all right, so yeah, everything gets stirred up by our, you know, cosmic biker gang that rolls through the tent, through town. So all those particles start spinning around, right? And when you have all those particles moving, suddenly you have collisions. Collisions occur. Now, this is where accretion begins. Because, clumps. Yeah, you start getting clumps. And a clump of particles, just even a small clump of particles, um, ends up having a gravitational pull on other clumps. So they start 
you know, clumping together. And, for, and, and this is actual, the actual term, uh, uh, astrophysicists use the term clump. So we're not. It's highly scientific. Yeah. We're, we're not dumbing it down any more than it. You, I mean, it's a clump. It's kind of like that game. Um, the, I, I have to mention this. Have you ever played Katamari Damacy? No, no, no. Oh, What's that? It's, it's a, it's a video game that was for PS2, 360, a number of other games. All right. So the idea is. You can't see me, but I'm rolling my eyes yeah. because that's a silly question to ask it's, if I've ever played I that. I know. But it's a, it's a Japanese video game. Um, and it, it, it involves the prince of the universe accidentally destroys the, the stars. So he, he charges this young prince with creating new stars. Okay. And you're the prince. And you're very small, this tiny little guy, and you have this little ball. And you roll it around. And as you roll it around, it starts, other objects start sticking to it. And it starts off small, so it's like paper clips stick to it. You know, thumbtacks. And then the ball starts getting bigger. And it just rolls, you know, rolls up to your rolling up, say, mice, um, erasers, um, chairs, tables. Eventually, you're rolling up, like, whole houses. And if it gets big enough... The king of the universe is this big mustachioed guy with a fancy <laughs> hat, takes it and turns it into a star. And really, that's that's the process. It's the, one of the silliest games I've ever played, and it's a blast, but that's basically accretion. Right. So as more matter falls into the clump, its center is going to grow denser and it's going to grow hotter. Over the course of a million years, the clump grows into a small, dense body, and it's called a protostar. And this protostar continues to draw in even more gas, and it gets even hotter. Yeah. And uh, eventually, our protostar gets hot enough, and we're talking 7 million degrees Kelvin. Um, and uh, remember that the, the sci- scientists use Kelvin scale when they're talking about very high temperatures, very low temperatures. Right. Zero Kelvin is absolute, absolute zero. zero that, you know, nothing can really touch. A theoretical temperature, if you will. I will. <laughs> um, so... It gets hot enough. The hydrogen atoms, be- the hydrogen atoms begin to fuse, producing helium and an outflow of energy. All right. Bang! Nuclear fusion. Yep. However, the outward push of its fusion energy is still weaker than the inward pull of gravity. So you have this tug of war going on uh, with the opposing forces in the young star's life. You made the point that it's kind of like a struggling business that still costs more to operate than it makes. Yeah, it's still it's still pulling in more than it can push out. So it hasn't stabilized yet into a mature adult star. Uh, but material continues to flow into the protostar, uh, providing increased mass and heat. And then finally, after millions of years, uh, some of these struggling stars reach the tipping point. Yeah, uh, sort of fireworks going on. Yeah. If, uh, if, enough, if they reach enough mass, which is roughly 0.1 solar masses, and a reminder, one solar mass equals our sun. You know, it's the closest star we have, so that's our, our measuring stick for everything else. Um, so right. 0.1 solar masses is obviously going to be... Smaller than that. Yeah. Uh, it reaches that point, it coll- and it'll collapse into the protostar, and it produces this thing called a bipolar flow. Uh, and that just means two massive gas jets are erupting uh, from opposite sides of the protostar, and uh, it just blasts the remaining gas and dust clear um, away from the fiery surface of the star. And bang, just like that, the young star stabilizes, and like a business, it finally becomes lucrative. It reaches the point where its output exceeds its intake. The outward pressure from hydrogen fusion now counteracts gravity's inward pull. It's a main sequence star, and it will remain so until it burns through all its fuel. Which brings us to our next question. Yeah, um, the lifespan of a star. It's kind of back to the business thing. You know, some businesses are run very well, um, and some businesses uh, are run very poorly. Um, so it, 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 it similar with the stars. It depends on the mass. A star the size of our sun takes roughly 50 million years to reach main sequence and maintains that level for approximately 10 billion years. Um, 
Astronomers classify the sun as a G-type main sequence star. The G indicates the sun's temperature and color. Right. Astronomers have to have some way to classify all the stars in the sky, so they invented, oh, be a fine girl, kiss me. Have you ever heard this? No. This is cool. It's a mnemonic device, and the first letter in each word of the mnemonic device corresponds to one of the spectral classes. So, for the O, an O star is going to be the hottest with temperatures between 30,000 and 60,000 kelvins, and an O star is blue. Yeah, that reminds me of the thing with the rainbows and the leprechaun. What's the name of, what's that? Lucky Charms? No, no, no. What the, are you talking about? It's like like some word, some nonsensical word that stands for all the different hues of the rainbow. Roy G. Biv? Yeah, Roy G. Biv. Yeah, yeah that's nothing like that. I, I highly disagree. Um... So after you have your O star, then you have less hot B stars, which have temps between 10,000 and 30,000 kelvins, and these are going to be blue-white. Then you have your A stars. I won't tell you the temperatures here because you're going to forget them. This is a podcast, after all. These A stars are white. You have F stars, and then you have G stars. These are yellow, like our sun. And by the way, if you guys don't know it, there is a podcast out on how the sun works that Josh and Chuck did. So if you want a little bit more background on the sun, that might be a good one to listen to. After your G stars, you have K stars. These are going to be yellow-orange. And lastly, all the way at the bottom of the list are M stars, which are red and are less than 3,500 kelvins. But you don't have to remember all that. Just remember, oh, be a fine girl and kiss me. You can also group stars depending on whether or not they have a mate. So a binary star, for example, or whether they occur in clusters or otherwise. Or maybe you're more interested in measuring luminosity, radius, movement, mass, or more. Uh, now, of course, the larger, brighter stars are going to burn out faster. Um, wolf rayet stars boast masses at least 20 times that of our sun, so it's 20 solar masses, and burn 4.5 times as hot. Uh, and they go super, supernova within a million years of reaching main sequence. Like so it's more like a wind. starlet, you know? <laughs> Rises up fast on yeah. the Hollywood scene, makes a big splash, and then bam, nobody's heard of them in five years. Exactly. Flash in the pan. That about wraps it up for Starbirth. You know, that sounds a lot like Starburst if you say it fast. By the way, did you know that Starburst were first called opal fruits? Opal fruits. Yeah, they, when they were first invented in the UK in 1960. But when they came to the US, the Americans changed the name to Starburst. I had to wonder if this had something to do with the space race. Maybe so. I searched the Google and I could not find anything. I wonder if opal, I wonder how opal fruits taste. I know I want to have one. I don't know. I think you should go downstairs after we finish recording and get some Starburst and give me one, please. You know what I'm excited about? What are you excited about, Robert? Um, I'm excited about our Twitter and our Facebook You love accounts. tweeting. Yeah, tweeting's pretty fun. What's our handle? Um, our handle on Twitter is Lab Stuff. Yeah, and you can become a fan of us on Facebook, too. Yeah, where we're just stuff in the science lab. You can just search, search us. You don't even have to push enter on the search. It just starts showing up. That's, yeah, we got a know. brand spanking new stuff from the science lab page on Facebook. Yeah, and uh, yeah, we're gonna we're keeping that updated with you know stuff we've written, stuff we are writing, stuff we're thinking about writing, queries for people with epigenetics expertise, all yeah, sorts of good stuff. Something about a spider that eats toenails. What was that? Yeah, yeah, that was a pretty crazy spider. So I think that's about it. You want to do some listener mail? Yeah, I've got some uh, pretty cool listener mail here. What do you got? Well, recently we did that whole uh, podcast about venom and uh, things we can do with venom, such as turn it into medicine or uh, or um, as, drink it or drink it. Yeah. So uh, this one here comes from uh, Paul in London. He says, uh, "Hi, Allison and Robert. My name is Paul, and I live in London, England." I just wait, 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 wait. can you go back? Can you yeah. do it with a British accent, please? I don't know. Would that be tasteful? Maybe not. Okay, forget it. I thought you do a pretty good British accent, though. Well, okay, I, let's okay. start I, over. No, forget no, I can it. do it. Just understand that there's no, uh, you know, I wish I had a British accent. So it's it's really more 
sad than it is distasteful. Um, hi, Alison and Robert. My name is Paul, and I live in London, England. I've just listened to your Virtues of Venom podcast, and I thought I would email you to let you know about my personal experience with snake wine. Well done. While traveling in Vietnam, I was convinced by an older Vietnamese barkeep to consume a shot, or three, of snake wine. <laughs> he said that it would make me, quote, a strong man, while he made a fish showing how it would work as an aphrodisiac. I'll be honest, I'm not sure about the review you read, read out in the podcast. It didn't taste like ginseng. I just remember it burning. I believe that there's also snake blood and snake bile wine, but thankfully I have not experienced either of these. Keep up the great work, Paul. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, so I'm, I, that was an, it was awesome to hear about even more snake venom related beverages out there. Indeed. And, uh, yeah, and, 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 uh, if anybody else, yeah, send me more reviews, cause I need to do a little research before I actually order a bottle. What else are you holding in your hand there? Oh, let's see. I've got uh, one from Jeffrey, and uh, I don't know where Jeffrey's from, so I'm just going to use my own accent. Hey, guys, just finished listening to the podcast on Venom, and Robert mentioned the idea of Venom and energy drinks. I remember a couple of years ago reading that reading this wasp in Korea whose Venom is used in energy drinks, or at least a component of the Venom. In its raw state, the Venom dissolves flesh, and people that get swarmed who don't die are pretty much disfigured for life. If I wasn't on my phone, I'd send you a link, but I had to mention it. Keep up the good work, Jeffrey. Sent for my iPhone. So, um, yeah, that's that's awesome. Uh, I looked it up a little, um, and uh, and yeah, apparently, apparently these uh, energy drinks are at least pretending to be made from uh, some sort of uh, like crazy lost juice. So uh, it's pretty interesting. Cool. Well, thanks for writing, guys. We always love hearing from you. And as always, if you want to send us an email about stars or anything else scientific, send us an email at sciencestuff at com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Want more How Stuff Works? Check out our blogs on the HowStuffWorks.com homepage. <laughs>